The movie uh, Saving Private Ryan is a, uh, is a classic war movie. It was put out in about 1998. Uh, it has Tom Hanks in it. Probably got one of the most brutal uh, war scenes um, of Normandy, I think it is, at the, for the first 20 minutes or so. But it's a story uh, about a Chief of Staff, General Marshall, who's uh, informed that three of a, women's, a woman's sons have been killed and that she's going to receive the notifications of their death at the same time. And he has this uh, discussion with his generals in his office where he decides, what are we going to do about this? And the reason why they're having a discussion is because she has four sons and the other son has actually parachuted down behind enemy lines. What are they going to do? Are they actually going to go and do what they can to save this last son with the chances that maybe he's been killed too? Or are they just going to leave him and let this lady possibly lose all of her children at the same time? Uh, those of you who have seen the movie would know the answer is that uh, General Marshall decides that he's going to send a squad of guys to find Private Ryan. And it's a dangerous mission. And some of them get killed on this mission. But you get this sense as the mission is actually happening that they're actually going to do it. Despite the fact that they're behind enemy lines, despite the fact that they've parachuted down and they're not really sure where this guy's parachuted down, and it's like they're looking for, I think one of the lines in the movie is, uh, you're looking for a needle in a stack of needles. Despite all of that, there's a sense in the movie that they're actually going to do it. They're actually going to get it done. You see, there's lots of tragic events that happen in the movie, but it's like the momentum is with the little guys. The momentum is with this little band of brothers who stick with each other. Yeah, they have their gripes. And you can get online and look on YouTube. Yeah, they have their gripes. And there's this classic scene where the, the guys are going, this is a dumb order. Why are we going to do this? They're complaining to Tom Hanks. And they said, what do you think of it? And he goes, I think it's a good order and we're just going to go and do it. And I said, well, don't you ever complain? He goes, never to you guys. He said, you only complain upwards, up through the ranks, not down to the people underneath you. And so there's all this talk about it. There's, there is the tension that maybe they're not actually going to get it done. But they end up triumphing against all of their foes. Let me shift to a different story. The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings. Who the heck is one little small hobbit called Frodo? And Sam. And in the end, Gollum. He kind of joins up with them. You see, it's a, it's a fascinating story and it's... There's a similar kind of storyline there because you get this sense, don't you, that they're actually going to do it. Like they sh it's like you're, actually, you're not allowed to do that. If you're a couple of hobbits in the middle, you know, and it's, and, you know, there are times in the movie where they want to give up, but it's kind of like the momentum's with them somehow. I mean, you notice sometimes in, uh, when you're watching sport, uh, I think if you go back a number of years, I think probably... One of the teams that epitomised this, I think, was, uh, was the Brisbane Lions for a while in that real peak time that they had, is they just would get some momentum and it was like, you just couldn't stop it. When they got momentum in the game, it was just going to happen. And you get a little bit of that kind of sense when you watch Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's precarious. Yeah, there's people being killed. It's, it's violent. It's tragic. But there's a sense like the little guys are going to get it done because the momentum's on their side. I want to show you a quick clip. This is as uh, Frodo and Sam and Gollum are getting close to Mount Mordor uh, to dispose of the ring. This, uh, I know. It's so wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. 
great stories in this world. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow, even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Furrow, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. Because they were holding on to something. What do we hold it on to, Sam? But there's some good in this world, Mr. Farrell. And it's worth fighting for. get it? I mean, it's a short clip. Do you get the sense? There's a sense of momentum there, isn't there? And the, mom the momentum's with the little guys. Let me read you, uh, let me give you a third little vignette. Luke 3 verse 1 to 2, listen to this. Stick this in the context of Saving Private Ryan and the Hobbit. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, these are the big guys, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the reign of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Listen to this. The word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. You get that? And you, I read that, and I'm hearing the same kind of momentum that I hear in those, and I see in those stories. Who's this ragtag guy with a bushy beard eating locusts and wild honey, with a camel hair kind of robe and he's out in the middle of nowhere in the bush as we would say in Australia and there's a sense like Luke's going that guy is the one who God's going to use to get it done and then Jesus shows up and we've been uh, working through for a couple of weeks now through the book of Mark and you get this sense that in the eyes of people Jesus is this minority figure he's this weak small figure but you also get this sense like he's going to be the one that's actually going to get it done ironically people didn't notice and they didn't knew they didn't know they didn't have the revelation that Jesus was this colossus he was this colossal figure that was bringing his strength to bear on the earth and so this morning what I want to share with you today and what we want to look at is we want to look at Mark 1 9 to 13 and we want to look at the irrepressible reality so if you've got a bible you can uh, get it out or you can read off the screen and we can all see if you've got a, uh, an astigmatism by how you frown. That's me. That's been my whole life. I walked out the other day and one of my sons was sitting reading a book and he's going like this. He's going, oh, I've seen that look before in the mirror. Here we go. 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And I want to show you today that this passage actually teaches us about the irrepressible reality, about how that reality was threatened and about how Jesus reclaimed reality for us. Notice the first uh, few verses there, Mark 1 verse 9 to 11. What you've got is you've got Jesus coming to uh, John the Baptist to be baptised. And just note the way that it actually expresses that. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. If you do a word search or you do a topic search in the Bible to try and find another time where the spirit was like a dove, you're not going to find it. But the interesting thing is, if you go back into the Targums, which is the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, um, the Jews actually used to translate this whole thing about um, the dove coming down on Jesus. They used to translate... uh, the first chapter of Genesis in the same way so you know in the first chapter of Genesis it says that the spirit of God hovered over the waters you know that they would actually say that the spirit of God fluttered over the waters kind of like a dove when you think about that you actually work out look hang on there's something significant going on in Mark and there's something significant that was going on at the beginning of creation obviously it was significant at the start because everything got created But Marx actually wants you to know that something really unique is actually happening here. And all of the members of the Godhead are present in the baptism of Jesus in the same way that they were in creation. Here's that scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And we notice that in John chapter 1 verse 1 to 3 it says this about creation. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. Listen to this. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that has been made. I think what, John wants, what Mark wants you to get here is he wants you to know in creation that God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were all present in creation and he wants you to know they're all present at the beginning of redemption. And Mark said this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you might ask yourself, and it's a good question, you might remember from Nathan's message last night, is that John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And you know what's a really interesting question is, what, is, what the heck is Jesus doing getting baptised? He doesn't need to repent, he's not a sinner. But you know what I think he's, uh, he's saying, what Jesus is saying is he wants to identify fully with sinners. He wants to identify fully with human nature. He wants to identify fully with weakness and with sin. And so he comes and he's part of it. And the really interesting thing that we actually see here, this interchange between the Godhead, and we're going to get into this a little bit in a minute, is that you've got each of the members of the Godhead giving to one another. The Father gives his love. The Son comes down upon Jesus. Jesus offers himself up to be part of God's plan of redemption see this if we go even further than what i was saying at the start in just saying that jesus is the one who's going to have the momentum you know what has the momentum in the whole universe this relationship 
That is the irrepressible reality of the universe, is the trinity, the relationship that actually happens between all the members of the Godhead. C.S. Lewis says this, In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing, nor a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great foundation of energy and beauty spurting up at the very centre of reality. See, this is the core reality of the world. And most people in the world don't live in this core reality, but this relationship between Father, Son and Holy Spirit is the core reality in the world. And some of you might go, well, what is the Trinity anyway? Well, I'll tell you, if you look up Trinity in the Bible, you won't find it because it's not there. Okay, the word's just not there. But what we actually know from reading the scriptures is that there are three persons who are God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Son's Jesus. But the Bible is very clear about the fact that there's only one God. Three persons, one God. Now, if you can explain that, um, help me. Because it's cognitively, cognitively, that's uh, linguistically challenging. Um, it's cognitively uh, challenging, isn't it? But here's the thing. Look, if you could understand everything about God, you'd be God. Yeah, good. And you'd be a better one than him. Okay, so it kind of makes sense that actually what's going to happen sometimes, we're going to hit some stuff that we don't get, we don't understand. It's going to be really different to us, really different our experience. And uh, we just take God on his word because he's got the runs on the board. But here's what I want to clarify. God is three persons. Now, this does not mean that the Spirit and the Father have become humans. The only person of the Godhead that became a human was Jesus. What it means is when I say that God's a person, I'm saying that each member of the Trinity acts, feels, speaks and relates because their persons are not impersonal forces. If you went to your local kingdom hall of Jehovah's Witnesses, they work really, really hard and I've had some good discussions with them. They work really hard to make the the Holy Spirit a power and an impersonal force. You have to work hard to to make the scriptures say that, right? Because they make, I mean, one example is uh, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know how you grieve a force. You grieve a person, you don't grieve a force. Now, I don't want to give you a lesson on why the Holy Spirit's not a power, but that just gives you an example. He is powerful, but he's a person who's powerful. So the first thing is God is three persons. Second thing is this, each person is fully God. What that means is that they all share the same divine attributes. Eternality, omniscience, which just means all-knowing, uh, omnipotence, all-powerful, and omnipresence, everywhere at once. So I could say to you today, God's actually here today, and that would actually be true. Now, you can't see him, and some people kind of go, well, if you can't see God, he mustn't be real. Just go, well, you just, if you're going to use that logic, you get in a whole lot of trouble, a whole world of hurt with that logic, because there's a lot of really important things that you can't see. True? Good example of that is love. You can see an expression of love. Can you see love? You can't see love. So God is three persons. Each person is fully God and there's one God. Scriptures are very, very clear about it. Now, some of you might be going at this point in time, you go, what does it even matter at all? Let me tell you why it matters. Because in humanity, we see that people long for selfless, trustworthy, unending love from someone they can trust to be faithful and helpful. 
Because in humanity, we see people longing for a unity within the great diversity of humanity, some way that we can live in peace and oneness with mutual benefit. Because in humanity, we see that people long for communication, not just information, face-to-face conversation. Because in humanity, we see that people long for community, significant relationships that are actually devoted to something larger and greater than our individual lives. Because in humanity, we see that people long for humility, where people pour themselves out unreservedly for the benefit and well-being of others. Because in humanity, we see that people long for peace, harmony and safe altruism for others and ourselves so that abuse, cruelty, misery and the painful tears they cause could stop. Amen? We long for this stuff. Because in humanity, we see that people long for a selfless common good where everyone does what is best for all and not so viciously and exclusively devoted to self-interest. Amen? Well, you know what? If that's true, if that's what humanity longs for, humanity longs for the Trinity because that's what they do. You see, our longings for love, our longings for unity and diversity, our longings for communication, community, humility, peace and selflessness, they're actually longings for the Trinity. See, in the Trinity, in the diversity of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit is a perfect unity. It's a unity where they communicate truthfully. They love unreservedly. They live connectedly. They serve humbly. They interact peacefully and they serve selflessly. This is what Tim Keller writes about the Trinity. He draws a little bit on C.S. Lewis. Each of the divine persons creates, sorry, centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The early Greek leaders of the church had a word for this, perichoresis. Notice the root of our word choreography within it. It means literally to dance or to flow around. Folks, this is the core reality of the universe. It is this group of three persons that created everything. It's this group of three persons that decided upon redemption. It's this group of three persons that's doing anything that's worth anything in the whole of the world. And they're a group of three persons selflessly committed to each other, giving themselves to each other and loving each other. Alvin Plantinga makes this comment about the Trinity. He says, The Father, Son and Holy Spirit glorify each other. At the centre of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. The persons within God exalt, commune with and defer to one another. When early Greek Christians spoke of perichoresis in God, they meant that each divine person harbours the others at the centre of his being. Just think about that. I mean, we're going to get to you in a minute. Like, is that, I mean, just at this point, we'll just pause for a minute. Is, is, that, is that you? That you harbour others at the centre of your being? All the time? Like, all the time? And I, I, I don't say that to have a crack at you. But I want you to get a sense of how amazing this is. This is an incredible community. This is an incredible community of persons that's driving everything. And you know what? 
Selfish humans can do whatever they want to this community and these guys are going to be like the Hobbit and Saving Private Ryan. They're going to be the ones that are going to win in the end even if there's a bunch of selfish, violent people that try to wreck it. Do you get that sense? This is the momentum. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. You know, and as I was thinking about this this week, some people, myself included, and maybe you, you can fess up to this if you want to, or not, just kind of rubs you up the wrong way that God talks so much about having to give him glory. Maybe it's just my own pride. Do you, know, do you ever think that? Because I think it's one thing about Australians, right? Tall poppy syndrome, man... I was talking about that over in the States when I was over there. They just don't get it, all right? Because you just want to get as high as you can and get as many people praising you as possible. In Australia, if you stand up and say how good you are, it's like you'll have a line of 150 people ready to correct you on that count, you know? (laughs) And it's almost like from an Australian point of view, God kind of says, uh, you need to glorify me. And you just go, oh, you conceited, blinking, beep, 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 so-and-so. True? And it's hard. I mean... And part of the reason why that's the case is that you want to be more important than him. Like, let's be honest with it, that happens. But there's still some kind of residual from that, even to some extent if you dealt with your pride. Maybe, maybe there's not. Maybe if you got rid of that, your pride, you'd get rid of that issue. But I want to suggest to you this. As I was thinking about it this week, I thought, you know what? I think when I think about that, I'm actually thinking that there's one God, one person, and he's calling people to give him glory. As I started to think about the Trinity and I thought, the one who's asking for glory is the one who doesn't want to receive any glory directly to themselves but wants to pass glory and wants to defer to someone else all the time. Now, someone like that is really easy to give glory to, isn't it? It's like they're not up there saying, you just give it to me. You're actually giving glory to a group of three persons who just continually give to each other. And they're not up there saying, just give to me, give to me, give to me. They're actually saying, I'm giving to this other person, just get, get, get into it with us. You see, you know, what, uh, you know what it means to glorify something? It means it's when you find it beautiful for what it is in itself and its beauty compels you to adore it and have your imagination captured by it. Now, that's kind of what the members of the Trinity do to each other and that's what God wants for you he wants you to be captured by it he wants you to be amazed by it now this is the fabric of the universe this is it this is the actual center reality of the whole universe is this relationship between the three and you know what this is what the story is being pushed along by. Now, you can kind of say, well, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. But if you do that, you're stepping out of true reality into a fabricated false reality. And you can make it all about yourself, but you're just going to miss out. I mean, Jesus made this classic um, statement uh, in one of the Gospels there, and I can't think of exactly where it is now, but he made this statement because some people thought that God needed them to serve him. And he said, you know what? He goes, I could make a son of Abraham out of that rock there. And he could. So there's a sense in Christianity like, in terms of Jesus, he says, come and get on board with me. Come and get on. If you don't get on board with him, it's not like his plan's all messed up. It's like you're just going to miss out. That's the sense of it. You're just going to miss out. This is 
the momentum in the universe. It started in creation and it's going to finish it. This momentum of this relationship between the three that continually give to one, to one another. The interesting thing is, and the amazing thing is, that God actually wants you to be part of this community, this, this family. John 1, 12 to 13, listen to this. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, I could ask you today, do you think that would be a good community of people to be involved with, people who are like that? <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, the most flabbergasting thing is that God invites you to be part of the inner circle. You can be one of his kids. You can be in that community that does that. And then uh, in uh, John, later on in uh, the high priestly prayer, he writes down what Jesus wrote. This is an amazing scripture. I made known to them your name, he's talking to his father, and will continue to make it known. Listen to this. This is like, you should hear, this is almost like a glass shattering somewhere, you know, where everyone turns. It's like that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is, I mean, there's, there's no terms for it. Why would God who has this relationship, want to bring into his relationship of the Trinity and share his love in a way that he says he wants to do it. But this is the opportunity that you have. You can be a child of God. You can actually join him in his dance, as C.S. Lewis says. Point two. I was reading a commentator and they said that uh, whenever you see Mark use a word immediately, he wants to link something that has previously happened to something that he's about to talk about. Mark goes on and he says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Do you know what's happening here? Jesus had this amazing, wonderful time. Straight away he's into it. The battle's on. The fight's on. Now, if you're not used to this kind of terminology, all you need to know is that God created other beings called angels. Some of the angels decided, a third of them decided that they didn't want to follow God. They didn't want God to be in the middle. They wanted to be in the middle. So they left him. They're kind of the demons and, uh, and the devil's kind of the head, head honcho of that organization. Um, and he's an opponent. He's an opponent of God. You see, Mark doesn't actually go into the detail of what the temptations are and I think part of the reason why is because he wants you to know that it's not finished. And you actually see in the rest of the book of Mark this ongoing clash between Jesus and, uh, and fallen angels and the demons and the devil. And in the end, Jesus is going to hold the devil up uh, to a public spectacle on the cross. I want to uh, show you a quick clip from uh, Thor because you'll love it. You'll look like Thor kind of people. Um, there's this really interesting scene at the start of the latest Thor movie, uh, The Dark World. Uh, I'm really catching up on my quality viewing. Um, where there's, uh, there's two brothers, uh, Thor and Loki. And uh, Loki in the previous film uh, was doing his level best to be king. Uh, but he was never meant to be king. And there's this uh, interesting scene at the start of the uh, second movie um, where he gets brought before his father and they have a bit of a discussion about it.
define worth. Enough. I will speak to the prisoner alone. <laughs> I really don't see what all the fuss is about. Do you not truly feel the gravity of your crimes? Wherever you go, there is war, ruin, and death. I went down to Midgard to rule the people of Earth as a benevolent god. Just like you. We are not gods. We're born, we live, we die. Just as humans do. Give or take 5,000 years. All this because Loki desires a throne. It is my birthright. Your birthright was to die as a child. Cast out onto a frozen rock. If I had not taken you in, you would not be here now to hate me. If I'm for the axe, then for mercy's sake, just swing it. It's not that I don't love our little talks. It's just... I don't love them. Frigga is the only reason you're still alive, and you will never see her again. You'll spend the rest of your days in the dungeon. And what of Thor? You'll make that witless oaf king while I rot in chains. Thor must strive to undo the damage you have done. He will bring order to the Nine Realms, and then, yes, he will be king. I think that's a good example of how humanity kind of gets it wrong. And I think, actually, it's a really good example of how the devil actually works to mess humanity up. You see, the, the two things that were said there, the first thing, like he said, is he said, I wanted to be a benevolent God. And the, the father, the king, says, well, we're not gods. And then uh, the father says later, he says, you wanted to have a throne. And that, that is what we see, I think, is, is actually at the centre of the demonic attempt to trip people up. And what actually happens is the devil comes in in... Uh, in Mark and in the other Gospels and tempts Jesus. Jesus goes out into the wilderness, out into the bush and the devil comes in and you know what the devil really tempts Jesus with? He tempts Jesus with this. It's all about me. Just deal with it. That's what it is. And you can see, this is not, they're not just temptations from Jesus. They're actually striking at the heart of the reality of the fabric of the universe. Because this is not the Trinity. The Trinity is like the absolute polar opposite to this. So the devil comes in and he says, what I want to do is I want to fragment this place. I want to fragment the Trinity and I want to get one of them to be thinking just about themselves and not about the other people. And if you go to uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 to 11, we're not going to read all of it, but if you go there, what you actually read is you read the questions that the devil asked Jesus to try and tempt him. And I wanted to go through them very quickly. Temptation one is this. The devil says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you know this temptation, in a sense, is an oxymoron? You see, what the devil's saying is he's saying, Use your authority as the Son of God to get what you need for yourself. 
But it's a little bit odd too as I was thinking about it because in a sense he's also saying if you are in family, in the family with the father, look after yourself. Do you see what I'm saying? It's kind of a bit of an oxymoron. Like if you're in the family with the father, he'll look after you. But he's kind of saying use your power and right to look after yourself. Make bread. He'd been fasting for 40 days. You're going to be hungry. Make bread. You're hungry. It's reasonable. Look after yourself. God's not going to do it. Even though he was the one who in the baptism, maybe it was 40 days earlier, I don't know, in the baptism, the father poured his love over the son. Now the devil's going, no, forget him. Get what you need. Don't let the spirit lead you. Don't wait for the father to care for you. Break out of the selfless dance. Make it about you, your hunger and your needs. What does Jesus say? I'm not going to miss out. My father will supply his word is enough. You notice this, those of you who know the story of Israel in the Old Testament, they came out of Egypt and they demanded bread in the wilderness, didn't they? They, didn't, they grasped for it in a way that Jesus didn't. And you know what happened to them? They all died. Jesus denied himself bread, retained his righteousness and lived by faithful submission to his father. Do you see that? He actually got the wilderness experience right. And I wonder about you. Let me ask you quickly. Do you live with a constant sense of dependence upon the Father? Does that inform everything that you do? Do you notice in yourself? Do you you ever notice any grasping? I've got to get this. I've got to look after this. It's like I'm not going to wait on God because I don't think he's going to do what I need. So I'm I'm going to look after it. I'm going to schedule it. I'm going to work on it i'm gonna i've got the money i can do it i don't you know it's like i look after myself thanks well if you've ever done that you've probably fallen victim to that first temptation temptation two if you are the son of god throw yourself down for it is written he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone this is classic What's classic about this is the devil's quoting the Bible to someone. Now, I remember reading this classic article by John Piper where he said, be careful about the way the devil uses the Bible. Notice what's going on here. The, the scripture in Psalm 91 verse 11 to 12 says this, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's pretty much what the devil said. But the devil is using it in a way that encourages Jesus to use it inappropriately. He's actually encouraging Jesus to use it in a way that's actually manipulative bribery. I'm going to jump and you'd better prove that you love me by catching me. Parents have gone probably had some issues like that with their kids sometimes. It's actually a double bind for God if Jesus does it. Let me show you how. Either God is evil for not catching him or he's under your control. Do you see this? The second one here is about control. Will Jesus take the option that controls his father? And you know, for God, he neither wants someone to do something that proves that he doesn't love them, nor does he want to be controlled by them. Because in both cases, he's a victim of something. He's the weaker party and he's never the weaker party because that's just the reality of the world. 
And I wonder whether you've ever asked in your heart, if God really loved me, he would do. Have you ever, have you ever said that? And it's, and it's, see, because if you have, you've kind of put God in that double bind. Because you're really saying, if he really loved me, he would do what I think. And then I would take seniority and authority over God. Or if he then goes ahead and does it, you're controlling him. Either he, he doesn't do it and he ends up in a place where you're saying he doesn't love you, which is not true, or he does do it and he ends up being controlled by you. You see, we're very object-oriented. We think often about how things have to end in a particular way. And I want to say to you this morning, God's not that interested in objectives and end results. He is. He's actually much more interested in the process of actually getting there. How does that actually happen? You see, the devil's saying to Jesus, look, control your father. Don't defer to him. Don't live for him. Don't let otherness and selflessness rule you. You control him for your ends. Don't serve him. Make him serve you. Step out of the dance. Temptation three. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, you know what the devil's saying? He's saying, take the shortcut to get in glory. Because you know Jesus is going to get it in the end anyway, but it's going to come through a cross. It's going to come through him dying on the cross. And the devil's saying, you don't actually have to do it God's way through the suffering. I can give you a little shortcut way to get there without the pain. Save the pain. Save the inconvenience and the suffering. Get the same objective without having to die. That's really what he's saying. And there's a section in Matthew 16 where Peter kind of says the same thing. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So this whole notion of taking a shortcut to get to something uh, without going the path that God wants you to can be really difficult. And you know why? Because that's all about looking after your own comfort. Here's the thing. If Jesus looks after his own comfort at this point, all is lost. The fabric of reality tears. Not just redemption, not just you being helped by God. Everything tears and falls apart if Jesus decides that he's going to go for his own comfort. And we better believe in the West that this is going to be a real issue for us, comfort. And maybe it comes into us going to two services, I don't even know. It's like, how does God want to get his stuff done? Well, I'd like it to be the most comfortable way possible, please God. And I'll take the option. If, if, if it's there, I'm going to take it. And in the same way that the devil... See, what did, what did Jesus have to do to get the glory? He had to bow down to a false god, the devil. That's exactly what we do, isn't it? I'm going to bow down to a false god. I'll find something else that I'm going to serve something else I'm going to treasure, something else I'm going to worship. If Jesus makes it about him, it's the end of the Trinity, it's the end of redemption, it's the end of humanity, it's the end of Jesus. It's the end. (laughs) So I wonder, I'm going to finish up really quickly here. I'll ask you the question, what do you think is actually wrong with the world? You know, one of the most common things that people say that I hear, is people are selfish. People are selfish. 
And I'm telling you, if this church gets selfish, if the individuals in this church get selfish, that's going to be the end of it. We'll be done inside probably three months, probably, if everyone just got really selfish. If we don't accept the invitation from the Trinity to be part of this selfless, totally giving community and stay in it, it'll kill us. Now, this is the cosmic reality. And I, I really want you to get it. Absolute, complete selflessness is the cosmic reality. It's the fabric of reality. And when we step out of it, we tear somehow. Because we're actually stepping out of line with what's actually happening in the world. But let me give you some good news. Reality gets restored in Jesus. You know how? If you're anything like me, you know, a little talk with the music team this morning. Like, if I asked you the question, do you actually believe that it is the best life to be completely selfless? Like, deep, deep down. I wonder what you'd say. Now, let me be so bold as to predict a question that many of you are probably thinking right now. Who's going to look after me? True? And I reckon, I actually think that's one of the greatest stumbling blocks to selflessness. If I actually give myself out to God and I give myself out to loving my neighbour, as God calls me to do, that's going to be the end of me. Who's going to look after me? Who's going to give me what I need? Check this out. Jesus goes through the wilderness. He he gets on the cross. He gets nailed on the cross. You know what? So that he can supply every one of your needs. So if I was to ask you the question again, who's going to look after me? You know what the answer is? Well, only Jesus. (laughs) That's all. So scripture there says, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, there's practical realities about it, right? And I'm not going to get kind of diverted because I want us to have communion in a couple of minutes. You're going to be all right. You need to read Psalm 23. The Lord is my what? My shepherd. He looks after me. Now, does that have a practical, does it have practical ramifications? Absolutely it does. But you've actually, in the gospel, you've got the answer to the question, who's going to look after me? Well, Jesus is going to look after you all the time. And he's going to organize other people to look after you. I mean, if you look at the Trinity, do you think they're sitting around wondering who's going to look after him? I don't think so. They're just going, well, it's really important that I look after the Holy Spirit. It's important I look after the Father. It's important I look after Jesus. And they're all kind of doing it to each other. And that's kind of how, as a church, it's meant to work. All right? We kind of, all of us who love Jesus, we go, I want to get in on that. Help me to get in, Jesus, on this reality of selflessness.
where I live for other people and I don't live for my own comfort and I don't try and control God. Help me just to get in that reality. And hopefully what we do imperfectly is we end up with 100 people in this room now who are just going, I just want the best for you. And you know what? I actually believe God by the Holy Spirit can lead you to go and minister to other people about stuff you don't even know about to make sure they get looked after. Does anyone else believe that? Yeah. So he's going to make sure you're okay. How, how does he do it? I don't know. Sometimes he does it through some of the most basic conversations, doesn't he? You just might go up to someone and shake their hand and just give them an encouragement. They go, oh, you wouldn't believe I had the crappest week ever. That means so much to me. It's like, wow, look at that. Maybe that's the shepherd just kicking in there, right? And it's like, if you, if you sit there and you kind of go, I need other people and I need God and everyone to come and meet my needs, you're not getting in the dance with the Trinity. Get in the dance and live for other people and live for God. Live for other people in the way that you live for God. And this, I love this one. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Listen to this. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died to make it possible for you to break free of your selfishness. And you can actually do it. And you know what? Someone on the music team said this this morning. You know, when you actually go out and you're selfless, it's actually really good. But before you start, you think, that's going to be terrible. And you know, I think part of the reason why is because that is just one of the devil's tools. He's just going to go, it won't be good for you if you live for someone else. And some of you still don't believe me. It won't be good for you if you live for someone else. And Jesus would go, that's the only place it's good. But you actually got to get through the inertia of getting started. Has anyone testified to that? It's good to live for other people. Who's with me? It is. But probably all the same people would say, Jesus, hard to get going sometimes. And the devil trips you up and he tempts you and he kind of says, just make it about yourself. Smash the fabric of the, of the universe. And Jesus goes, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to step out of that. Here's where I'm going to finish. Beautiful, beautiful C.S. Lewis quote. He says, In self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm not only of all creation, but of all being. For the eternal word, Jesus, also gives himself in sacrifice. When he was crucified, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces. I love that. Which he had done at home in glory. See that? He actually started, he's always been giving himself in the Trinity. So it wasn't that unique for Jesus to come and give himself for someone else. Because that's what he does. That's what they all do. Which he had done at home in glory and gladness from before the foundation of the world. From the highest to the lowest. Self exists to be abdicated. Man, write that on your mirror. Self exists to be abdicated and by that abdication, it becomes more truly self. Whoa, that's the opposite of what we expect. To be thereupon yet the more abdicated and so forever. This is not a law which we can escape. See, it's a fabric of, the reality, of reality. What is outside the system of self-giving is simply and solely hell. That fierce imprisonment of the self. Listen to this last bit. Self-giving is absolute 
reality.